Hi, it's Joel Blackstock with the Taproot Therapy Collective Podcast, and today I'm going to read an article from our blog at gettherapybirmingham.com called Nothing Gold Can Stay, a thought experiment about money, power, wealth, and the psychology of economy. So what do we value as people, as a society? It's important to note that in this article, this is a thought experiment uh, for the purpose of reconsidering our implicit assumptions and societal conceptions of the necessities for civilization and the norms that make us human. Um, in the article uh, or the podcast about mysticism, I pointed out that I was a psychotherapist and not a theologian. And <clears throat> here I need to point out that I am not an economist either. This is a thought experiment, and it is not advocating for any kind of specific new political or economic reality. Instead, it's a way to consider the things that we take for granted and meditate on new ideas that might allow us to conceive of a healthier or a more stable society. So if we didn't have gold, if we didn't have the, the noble metals on the periodic table, like iridium and silver and platinum, um, are not very reactive. What would money have looked at like? You know, these metals are non-perishable, the precious metals, and there's not a lot of other goods that we can make that hold value in the way that they do. They're in a small convenient package, and they have a high luster and malleability. They don't spoil with age. How would society store value without something like gold? Well, there are a couple examples of how money developed in places without gold, and my favorite is an island called Yap, where there was little to no money. It's a you know a pre-industrial society that hadn't been discovered by any empire yet, and so the native Yapese used these twenty-foot-tall limestone discs that weighed hundreds of pounds for money. So, how did this kind of money work? How do you put a two hundred pound or, you know, in some cases, like 500-pound stone tablet in your pocket or in a vending machine or slide it across a bar uh, to use it as money. Well, the Yapese never moved the stones that they used as money. Instead, they kept an oral and societal ledger of who owned what stone, which is really all that's important about money is somebody remembering who owns it. And so money that can't fit into your wallet might seem like a crazy idea, but think about how your debit card works. There's this collective ledger somewhere out there that changes every time you slide your card, even though no physical money is moved. And we really can't even keep track of it in our heads, but we trust that someone is doing it right. And collectively, you know, we all kind of do it the same way. That's how the money on Yap worked. So on this island of Yap, the acquisition and distribution of rye stones, rye is what they called the money, R-A-I, um, they were tied to social merit and prestige. So somebody owned the money. No one could take it from them. It wasn't a communist society. Um, they got to choose who it gave the money to, but you know, there's social pressures maybe in that same way there is in capitalism, you know, that you have to if you're a billionaire, you have to start a nonprofit or you have to um, be benevolent in some way to, to, to make an argument for your worth in society. And so this process of awarding the rye stones, 
on the Yap Island. It was based on various factors that reflected an individual status, achievement, achievements, and contributions to the community. Now, I mean, somebody could just take one and say, I'm never going to give it to anybody. I'm going to take all these. That was an option available. But generally, there's this um, tendency in the money on Yap uh, to, to give it to people who deserve it or who have given back to society in some meaningful way. So the, the primary means of acquiring a rye stone was through social recognition and acknowledgement of an individual's accomplishments. And these accomplishments could include successful leadership or an act of bravery or um, notable, notable achievements in various fields like agricultural, agricultural uh, development, craftsmanship, diplomacy. And there, there seemed to be this respected um, method of noticing when somebody did this well and then somebody stepping up to kind of pay them a rye stone. Granted, these stones never moved. Like, they sat there. And the society said, this new person owns this new stone. There's even one story about how they were moving one of the stones in between the islands uh, just to kind of transfer it. And, and it sank. And everybody was like, well, okay, it sank into the ocean, but it's still there. So, I mean, we'll just keep keep it going. And so, you know, a group of people or a family or whatever, at different points, they owned the stone that was under the ocean that no one ever, would ever get back. But it was still money, still there, still part of the system. Um, this is... Just one thought experiment about what money might look like without gold, but um, it's kind of an interesting one. And so this recognition of awarding rye stones um, to different people, it was carried out through public ceremonies and gatherings. And these events provided a platform for the community to acknowledge and celebrate the achievements of an individual. The stones were typically presented by influential community leaders or elders who acted as arbiters of the social merit of the community, um, sometimes secular, sometimes more religious. And it, it's important to note, though, that the awarding of rye stones was not uh, this purely individualistic pursuit, um, but it was rather a collective decision. So even though the individual owned it, the individual could reward it, there is social pressure that if you have not done a good job at something for a while and somebody else is doing a good job, you probably need to give them a rye stone, you know, to... Uh, compensate them. There's that pressure that's always acting on this monetary system. So um, these rye stones, they were bestowed upon an individual, um, but they couldn't be hoarded or accumulated solely for personal wealth. It'd be very hard, nigh impossible for somebody to own all of them um, in Yap culture. And so this Yapese monetary system, it served as this tangible representation that rye stones did and the social you know, contract that kept them moving. It served as this tangible representation of honor and status, and it reinforced the social fabric and common good of the Yap society. So in answer to the original question, how could society store value without gold? Um, I'm not going to bore you with like 800 examples of pre-industrial societies forming their own monetary system, even across sometimes pretty vast empires like in Africa. Um, the, the answer is, if you don't have a precious metal, what you usually re revolve your society around storing wealth in is something like reputation or honor, social merit. There's a system that props up that rewards benevolence and generosity and innovation in the way that sometimes, um, you know, precious metal back systems or debt back systems don't do. And so the people who gave back to society the most 
in these pre-industrial societies, they would be awarded the most value in the form of reputation. And not by how many precious metals or how much debt or bland or, you know, whatever the scarcity uh, thing is, but reputation. So how did something like gold change our conception of society and culture? So gold has long fascinated humanity because it has this allure. Um, it's very rare. Um, it's needed for a lot of things. It's non-perishable in that like it doesn't go away. Like you can throw a bunch of gold in a dungeon and then a hobbit can come reclaim it in a thousand years. Like it, nothing happens to it. If you did that with like wheat or clothing or something like they'd be rotted and out of date and even buildings, you know, they require maintenance. Like if you leave a building for a thousand years, it's gone. So there's nothing that really holds value in the way that gold does because gold's properties don't change. So if there were a couple changes to the astrophysical geometry of our universe, um, we wouldn't have enough gold on this planet. So we're, you know, why is gold on earth and what is our relationship to it? So in a lot of psychology and, and myths, gold is representative of um, the self. You know, you go on this trip to reclaim gold, but really along the way you find out who you are and it wasn't really about the treasure. It was about the journey. And, you know, that's part of our mythological systems and the way that we tell stories. But why is the element of gold on our planet? So uh, when you look at like most noble metals, and again, like I'm not a scientist, I'm sure somebody's going to say like, well, there's a billion caveats and, and, and there are, but I'm trying to make this simple. Like most uh, of those noble metals, like they're not very reactive. Um, and that's because they come from the reactions inside of stars and they leave the star as gas because stars are just like these hydrogen processing, like it's the most reaction, chemical reactions that can ever take place in like one spot. And so by the time something leaves, it's pretty reacted with, it's pretty inert. And so you get these metals leaving as a gas and they go like out across the universe. And so, I mean, because they're like in this gas across the universe, there would have been some minuscule amounts of gold just like in the planet. Um, but you never would have been able to mine it or use it as a currency or um, like, like have gold jewelry. It would not have been common enough if it was not for the later period of our planet's history, which is about 44 billion years ago. And that's the heavy bombardment period. And that's where these meteors from somewhere way outside of our solar system come into it. And a ton of them hit the planet and they hit the planet and they go deep enough into the planet that they uh, change its elemental formation. And those meteors are carrying most of the gold that we use to do all the stuff we do with gold, uh, including inform our uh, understanding of how money and value work. And if they had missed, who knows what would happen. But because they hit, that is why we think of money the way that we do. So, you know, why is gold associated with money and currency at all? Um, when you think about gold, yeah, you can use it for a billion things. You can hammer it into, you know, gold leaf and put it on the top of the Capitol building. You can coat, uh, you know, the, the lander craft in it to have a very light way when you're landing on the moon of reflecting electromagnetic radiation. Like you can do a zillion things with gold that are really useful. It's a very non-reactive, you know, conductor. But we, when we think of gold, we think of like money and coins and bars and uh, gold finger and that kind of thing. Why? Um, well, gold is durable. It's divisible. Like you can easily get a coin and say, okay, I don't want to pay the whole coin. I want to pay half of it cut in half. It's portable in that like it holds a lot of value in a very small package. And it, so it's ideal, um, for like an exchange medium for a lot of reasons. 
Um, but it also has an, just this intrinsic value into that it has a lot of luster, like it's very pretty. You can make it into jewelry because it reflects light well. You know, we like things like diamonds and that reflect light you know, historically. Um, it's malleable and that like you can bend it in a way you can't bend a diamond or a gemstone. Um, it's it's ductile and that you can make it very small. It's not reactive and it's not going to go away when you throw it in your treasure chest. So there's a lot of reasons that we use it as currency. So the use of metal coins uh, started in 600 BC in ancient Lydia, which is now Turkey. And the coins were made from precious metals, usually gold, sometimes silver, and occasionally bronze uh, for less valuable things. And the value was determined by weight and purity, and then the coins could be divided. And th that's where they, the, the first coinage came from. And over time, you know, gold became pretty widely accepted as uh, the standard for money. And minting currency meant that you had control over what was going on in your empire and a little bit of propaganda or advertising because you put your god or your king's portrait on the on the money which we we still do and um you know so the scarcity of it uh and being afraid that the, what you were getting was not pure or it wasn't the right weight you know that's all stuff that just sort of became associated with money pretty early greeks romans egyptians persians this isn't supposed to be a history lesson but they all use metal coinage, and then that continues through the medieval and the modern period. Um, so in, in medieval Europe, the only people who knew how to test gold and, and do everything were goldsmiths, and so they were uh, very trusted. And slowly, um, I think it happened at first during the Crusades with the Knights Templar, don't quote me on that, and the Hospitallers, um, where people started to issue paper money in the form of a receipt for gold. Because, you know, a treasure chest of gold, if you're going to rob, drag that, you know, all the way from one country to the next country, you have to have a big wagon, you got to have a bunch of guards, everybody knows that there's a bunch of gold in your thing because you are pulling it and it's, it's very heavy when you get a lot of gold. So even though gold's pretty portable, in a huge volume, it becomes this liability because people see it and they kill you. You know, even if you have 20 guards and you have enough money to feed them and everything, then somebody just goes, gets 40 because it's worth it to take all your gold. And um, if memory serves the practice of issuing like a receipt for like debt money, paper money started when people were trying to go to the crusades because they didn't want to drag all this gold all the way, you know, through this bandit country of the desert and on this journey. So the Knights Templar or the hospitalers would have, you know, this big castle and you would go and you would dump your gold at the castle in France or England and then give you a receipt. And then when you got to Jerusalem or when you got uh, to Malta or wherever you're going, then you go to another castle, you give them the receipt with the secret code or the wax seal, and then they say, okay, this is valid for the X amount of gold, they give it to you. And so this idea that money existed at debt of gold started then, and then became pretty common. And so most banking systems, if you ever look up Civil War money, or, you know, um, they, they're, they're gold certificates, they're not actually paper money, they wouldn't say that they're you can look at it and it say this is valued at one troy ounce of blah, blah, blah. Um, and those are like the old certificates with the gold leaf around them and everything. You, you still see them sometimes like on a movie or something. Um, and that was because the paper was just the proxy. The gold was the thing. You're still using gold as money. You're just going and getting the money. Um, you're keeping track of the gold that you own with paper because it's inconvenient to have gold in your pocket all the time. Same way that it's inconvenient to have cash in your pocket now. Um, so 
what happened uh, after World War One was that this idea of having you know a Fort Knox or uh, a, a state treasury with a ton of gold in it that just sat there becomes um, it, it without going into a huge economics lesson. One, it's really expensive and it's very inconvenient. And then also you can't really change exchange rates and things as quickly. Um, you can't print a whole bunch of Deutschmarks because your Deutschmarks are, uh, you, you owe a whole lot of debt and reparations post-World War II. You can't do things like that. And so the ability to have uh, a more flexible monetary policy meant that most people, with the U.S. had happened under Nixon. Nixon threw out the gold standard. Um, it happened to most of Europe uh, before the U.S. But money became fiat, which just meant it's what we are owed. We The government... Um, is charging tax in that, and so you owe it back to the government as debt. Um, but the the short answer in all this is, or the short point is that money at this point is backed by nothing. It is just paper, and the paper says that you have the full faith and credit of the U.S. government instead of one ounce of Troy silver or gold or whatever. Because what they're doing is saying, um, you know, this money is worth something because you are banking on the United States or the government of France or whatever still existing, and. So even though we no longer have a gold standard, even though we no longer use money as gold, the idea of what money is comes from our relationship to this precious metal. Um, and, and that we weren't using something else as money, like a, a social currency or uh, a gift economy or an exchange economy or barter economy. I mean, that all came even though we don't have gold anymore. We still base money like we on this idea of gold and even things like cryptocurrencies and NFTs that are supposed to blow up this whole idea of money there. It's just this digital asset saying you have this digital token that says that you have a percentage of this digital other thing somewhere else. I mean, they're still based on that idea of scarcity in our relationship with gold. Um, we got all of our ideas from that. And if those asteroids had not hit our planet in the late bombardment period, we would have a different idea of what money is like. So, you know, what does money without gold look like? You know, the island of Yap is one example. Um, there's also, you know, a couple, you know, in isolated or pre-industrial societies where there wasn't gold, people had this understanding that resources were meant to be shared or distributed evenly. They thought about it differently. You weren't trying to hoard things. You were trying to distribute them because if you're trying to distribute them, um, you have less of a target on your back and you're also seen as a more valuable member. So um, you want to be exchanging things. When you read like ancient Norse, um, you know, Beowulf and things like that, they, they have all these kinnings that they use and, and they'll refer to kings a lot of times. A kinning is where you talk about something um, based on the, the sum of its parts. A description is what it is. So like a, a foam crashing wave crusher is a boat or the like seafaring like um, sea beasts or something or whales and a lot of times they say that the glad-handed ring giver is a king because the kings were only kings in Norse society because they were proving that they could get a lot of stuff to give away. It was more of a gift economy than we have now, even though they did have they did have gold. Um, and so, like in a lot of these cultures, there the safety um, did not come from hoarding things or from scarcity. It came from generosity and compassion, not just hoarding material goods. And so other people took care of each other because they knew that when they needed help, others would take care of them. And that was the social insurance and this social merit. It functioned the way insurance does now that, you know, everyone saw you feeding this hungry guy. So when you're hungry, maybe they'll feed you, you know, if your family is put in that situation. So in these barter and communal and gift economies, um, you know, power was not the most precious resource. 
Instead, reputation and social merit were the most precious resources. And because wealth and value can't be hoarded materially, you can't just put a whole bunch of social merit in a closet and then even though everyone hates you in a year, be like, hey, look, no, I still got all the social merit. That's not how it works. You know, it didn't let people accrue value um, through scarcity. They had to be an active member of a system. They had to be accruing value by being useful and inventive and generous and civic, um, civically minded. So, you know, these systems rewarded people who innovated and who lived compassionately because societal regard becomes, when you don't have the ability to hoard wealth materially, um, societal regard becomes the most important resource, not electronic debt or precious metal. And so, you know, again, that's because things like food, clothing, tools, they all lose their value. You can't, um, you, you, you can't hoard those because the tools, all, all that stuff loses its, loses its value. And so people are incentivized to share and live communally in gift economies because clout and reputation become more valuable than any one good or resource um, or service. And so these systems are empowering um, because when we need, when need arises, society is naturally incentivized to meet those needs, not ignore them. And material wealth is always decreasing in value. So social wealth has more value and value is stored in the social ledger of reputation, not in a material or electronic ledger of debt. And so in a debt and precious metals based system, value is disempowering because wealth tends to snowball. You know, the people who have more money in a system like ours, they have access to more power. And so they are likely to use that power to get more money uh, and, and rinse and repeat. And the money tends to snowball in a couple of people. Um, I don't know the statistic. Again, this isn't about economics or changing our current system. It's just about reflecting on the nature of ideas and our conceptions about them. But I think like you know, something like five or two, two or five percent of the world owns like eighty-nine percent of the money, and you're close to nine percent of the money. This teeny tiny bit. Um, so it's this. It's, our system does not function the way these other systems did. So, um, in, in in a system like ours, in a system um, where you're able to hoard material wealth, other people's problems economically they become a good thing for me because they mean that other people have less power, and I'm in competition with those people. And so the more social problems that we don't fix, the more safe I am, um, or it feels that way. Um, society also is a little less stable uh, in certain ways. Um, and so why does this non-perishable nature of metals like gold uh, lead to, to scarcity, competition, and inequality? Well, like the scarcity of precious metals, uh, they allowed individuals and institutions to accumulate and hoard wealth. And then that creates this disparity um, of resources and the accumulation of precious metals becomes a means of showing someone's economic power and social status. And that concentration of wealth in the hands of very few people uh, led to economic inequality with limited access to resources for the majority of the population. Um, it also incentivizes things like imperial war and conflict because the point of society doesn't become fixing problems because, you know, in our system, problems are kind of a good thing. You don't really want to fix all of them. Um, but what you are incentivized to do is hoard power by trying to have power over other countries. And so the point of society are groups, outgroups. And so you get a lot of imperialism in these systems, which wouldn't really have happened in the other systems. You know, they would have one need and then they would go invade land and then try and live there. You know, there were still wars in pre-industrial society, but usually it, it had the purpose of taking care of a group. It wasn't just to go get more stuff to keep. Um, that's a modern idea. So, um, you know, 
long story short, when the purpose of society becomes hoarding power instead of building sustainable or equitable systems, people don't really take care of each other. So is there an alternative system? Well, non-industrial societies, before they were gold, they were barter and gift economies, and they operated on different principles than we have now, like we just went over. Um, and so some examples of what those were like is like in a gift economy, goods and services are given without the uh, expectation of an immediate return. And so they tend to promote social cohesion. They tend to reinforce communal bonds. Uh, and by focusing on reciprocity and sharing, gift economies prioritize the well-being of the community as a whole. Um, and moreover, uh, barter and gift economies, they can be more environmentally sustainable um, compared to hoarding precious metal or debt-based systems because they rely on utilizing resources within the community. So you're promoting local production, and that local production means that things are made here. You're not going to where the workers have the least power because my point is to hoard things and I want to be able to pay the least. So I, I'm going to go to China or Mexico and build my factory there. You're incentivized to build things locally. So when you're manufacturing things on site, you don't have all of the you know carbon costs of long-distance trade. You don't have things like a disposable um, uh, supply chain and uh, disposable infrastructure. So, you know, that, that's another part of, so I mean, before this starts to sound too much like a, a college, you know, a econ class, um, just wrap up the difference in the way that societies without a precious metal system conceive of money versus the way that we do, you know, um, social relationships and trust are a huge thing. Um, whereas in our system, they're almost kind of a problem, you know, to being able to, 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 to hoard money. Um, also non-monetary transactions by passing money entirely by putting value directly in the thing. That's another characteristic of a gift economy. There's also this kind of abundance mindset. Like people are thinking about how much stuff they have and not scarcity. So they're reacting based on like, what do I want? I could go do this. I could do that. Not like, oh, I don't have that. I don't have a car. I don't have this kind of shoe. I don't have that brand which is um, kind of the defining feature of a debt economy is, is scarcity. Whereas the other mindset is like abundance where you're just thinking about like, what need can I meet? And you're thinking about meeting other people's needs, not what you can do for yourself more, um, more often. And none of this is an absolute, of course. Um, so there's also a lot of like social obligation and prestige. You get cultures that are based more around, um, doing big, uh, you know, festivals, ceremonies, very social things. Because if you're keeping this ledger as reputation, you have to have everybody there. Or you have to have a lot of people together and you have to have a lot of social infrastructure and holidays and all these things so that you can keep track of, you know, who's doing what and, and, and everybody's role in, in the system, which overall is kind of a more psychologically healthy thing because we're not just kind of on TikTok um, yelling about different things, but we're, you know, engaging together. There's more reciprocity and sharing. And, now, the big thing is that there's this notion of individuality, not the collective, um, of competition, of ego, the me, you know, and scarcity. And that those things have, you know, maybe some benefits or they're needed in moderation. But when you're looking at these two systems, you know, one of them is less healthy. And again, like I'm not advocating that we go like barter beaver furs and, and, and burn our money. That's not the point of this. It's just to think about something as subtle as money, what it is, you know, kind of affects our take on life. And there's a, a a power and a psychology in a lot of things where we don't always think that there is psychology and things like economy. That's why we did the 
series on the psychology of architecture, on urban design, of music, um, because I, I do think that these things are all part of mental health. And a lot of times when we talk about mental health, we just say like, okay, we'll eat 10 pieces of broccoli and drink water and think healthy thoughts. And, and I think that psychology is bigger than that and mental health is bigger than that. And being able to think about some of these things abstractly um, gives us some more clarity on the way that we think. So, you know, in conclusion, what is the point? Why talk about uh, cold and history for an hour? Um, well, I think that when we assume the ways that our culture works or our systems work are the only way that they can ever work. That's a huge hindrance to our intuition and our creativity, and it stifles our ability to imagine a better world, which is one of the points of me being a therapist or a lot of people being a therapist is that you want to find the world better, you know, when you die than, than you found it. You want to leave it better than you found it, which is why, you know, I see patients for eight hours a day. So, you know, just thinking about if those asteroids had missed our planet billions of years ago, they dumped the gold back into the black void of space, and we, we never had enough of it to build a system like this, what would our culture or our monetary system look like? Would it look anything like this? And, you know, again, the point is not to say we should get rid of all the gold and, and build another system. It's to just kind of think about people say that this system is human nature or that this is just how it works. And, and I'm advocating for, like, maybe it doesn't, you know. <laughs> Maybe some of these things are affected by material reality and we're just kind of water that is filling a vessel, but it's not our humanity that's doing this. It's it's a humanity maybe that is unchecked, but we can check it and we can think about these systems for a minute. Uh, many people misquote the Bible that money is the root of all evil. The, the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, we all interact with money daily, but we rarely think about what it is and the way that we think about money, and the way that thinking about money changes the role that it plays in our lives and how we behave. And we often talk about values in this abstract way, like, you know, a stand-up guy, or, you know, I want there to be a president with character, or I want there to be somebody who fights for whatever, but those are abstractions of values. I mean, think about what value actually is. You're saying, like, what is the, what is something that, what gives this thing worth? Is it because it's shiny and it has high luster and high malleability, or is it because it fills needs in society and takes care of people and makes things better? You know, we, we, we want values to be this thing that is this easy thing to just kind of say and dismiss, but we don't really want to think about what we value as people. And the heart of this article is to make you think about what you value about yourself and what you value about the world and what we as a culture should value differently or, or place value in different places. You know, we, we don't always think about what value itself actually is. How do we decide what has worth and what doesn't? And these assumptions about what is valuable and good and what the point of our society should be, it's often based on outdated and unhealthy assumptions um, that it should, conser- it should occur to us to reconsider. And so by moving away from a mindset that prioritizes individual accumulation, gift economies, encourage a sense of collective responsibility and interconnectedness. And I think a little bit of that post COVID would be good. Um, this shift in perspective can have positive effects on our mental health and it can promote a sense of belonging and trust and reducing feelings of isolation, paranoia, competition. Um, so go volunteer some time. 
you know, don't just say, well, I'm a good person because I gave some debt-based money to a charity. What are you really doing? What are you teaching your kids to value? Are you taking walks in the woods? Are you taking care of your health more than your career? Um, you know, and it, we live in a world with a ton of limitations, so it's not like we can just all throw these away, but we should think about it. You know, most of the patients that I see suffer from profound sense of separation and disconnection in the middle of one of the most popular populated areas. They just feel totally alone. And, you know, our civilization would benefit from assuming the intrinsic value of all beings and the importance of meeting collective needs rather than amassing individual wealth. And not just in economics, but in our lives, like we should prioritize collaboration and generosity, and then we should move away from an emphasis on individuality, competition, ego, and scarcity. And we do that when we're afraid. And if we can work on being less afraid, I think that we're going to be able to collaborate and be more generous and be more healthy. And you know, what a person or society values is one of the best indicators of who they are, what it is. And so reflect on what you unconsciously place value in and what that says about who you are. And we have a limited time on earth and it's important to stay in touch with what we want the purpose of our life to be. So in conclusion, where does your worth lie? What makes you valuable? We talk a lot about in therapy about like, this doesn't make you lovable. You know, your weight or your bank account or whatever, that's not what makes you lovable. What do you think does make you lovable? Who are you? That is the point of this thought experiment. And I'm going to end with a poem from Robert Frost called Nothing Gold Can Stay. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay.